0: Well, today we're going to pick up our study of 1 Samuel, exactly where we left off last week, and that is with the people of God and their brand new king, his name is Saul, in a bit of a bind. And in fact, it's more than a bit of a bind. If you were with us last week, you know that we left off and these guys were in what, humanly speaking at least, from what you can see, smell, hear, taste, and touch is undeniably a no-win, you-are-going-to-die-for-sure situation. And here's why, if you missed it. Last week, Jonathan, the son of the newly minted king, who is Saul, went out and with his troops, he attacked a Philistine garrison of soldiers that were located in the hill country of Israel, and he defeated them. He wiped them out. And you're like, well, right on. Way to go, Jonathan. Great job. Great victory and all of that stuff. And it's clear that the Bible commends Jonathan, but now consider the consequences too. What that does is it provokes an all-out war with the entirety of the Philistines. In other words, they don't just say, all right, well, we're going to respond in kind and we'll wipe out one of their garrisons. They say, no, 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 we're going to wipe them out, period. That's it. We have the advantage. Someday that's going to change. Right now, we have the ability to wipe them out completely. So we're going to wipe them out completely. And so I want you to hear the numbers again if you've missed this. On the Philistine side of the equation, there are 30,000 chariots, 6,000 cavalry, soldiers on horses... And they have foot soldiers so numerous that the Bible comes to us and says, Listen, don't even try to count them, okay? It's like going to the beach and counting the sand. It's ridiculous. There are way too many even to count. So that's the Philistine side. The Israelite side of the equation, all right, well, there's no chariots, there's no cavalry. And there were, at the beginning of the story last week, 3,000, which is a very countable number, foot soldiers, but as we pick up our story today, there's exactly 600, and here's why, because 2,400 of the Israelite soldiers have looked at this, no win, you're certainly going to lose, and die in the process situation, and have said, yeah, we're out. And they have either defected and gone over to the Philistine army and said to the guys, hey, looks like you're going to win, we want to be on your team, will you take us? Answer, yes. Or they've simply left the promised land entirely, went east, crossed the Jordan, and kept running. Kept running. And you say, well, you know, but what about everybody else in Israel? I mean, surely there were other people living in Israel who could have fought, and that's true. That's true. But what did we read last week about all Israel? All Israel, except for the defectors, you already know what they did, are hiding underground. Think about that image for a minute. They're hiding, we're told, in rocks and in caves and in holes and in tombs and in cisterns, which are these underground water tanks that they collected and stored water in when it rained, which is rare in Israel. You get the idea? So what's here, happening here is Israel as a whole is looking at this Philistine invasion that's coming, it's impending, it's imminent, and they're saying, you know what? We are so sure that we're going to die that we're just going to go ahead and bury ourselves now. For the Philistines are not only superior numerically, but they are vastly superior, as we saw as well, technologically. What's happening here historically is that the Philistines have moved from the Bronze Age to the Iron Age, and they have held a monopoly on that technology, meaning the Israelites are still stuck in the Bronze Age, and here's why that matters. The Philistine soldiers all... Well, we can't even count them, can we? Because there's too many of them. All have swords. The Israelites... All right, they're down to 600 soldiers Two with swords. Saul and Jonathan. Oh, and the Philistines also have the strategic high ground. So you want to look at this story and go, um, exactly what does Israel have on their side? Like, is there anything going for them? And the answer to that is, yes, but he's invisible. He is, isn't he? The Israelites, whether they realize it or not, it's pretty clear that they don't yet have God on their side. And exactly one person in all of Israel seems to get that, and his name is not Saul. It's Jonathan, the son of King Saul. And here's what the son of the king will teach us today. He will teach us that the deliverance that we're all looking for, because here's the thing, we all have our version of the Philistines, do we not? That which we look at, and honestly, in the flesh quake. In light of what I can see, smell, hear, taste, and touch, uh, I'm just, I might as well just bury myself now. It's game over. It's no win. The deliverance that we're all looking for and so desperately need is found only in our King, and His name is Christ. We pick up our story today in 1 Samuel, beginning in verse 1, where we read this. We read that one day in the midst of all of this panic over the impending imminent attack of the, Phil- attack of the Philistines, Jonathan, there he is, the son of Saul, the two main characters in this story, said to the young man who carried his armor, come and let us go over to the Philistine garrison, which is likely a reference to the main or to the central part of this massive Philistine army that has now shifted westward. They're coming toward the Israelites is the idea and they have shifted to a place called the Michmash Pass, which is a pass that connects Michmash, which is where they have been, and they are still, at least in part, and Gibeah, or Geba, which is where Saul and his 600 soldiers are located. So practically speaking now, these two armies are about four miles apart. So then one day, in that context, Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried uh, his armor, come and let us go over to the main or central part of this Philistine garrison, which is now located only four miles away, so it's convenient, on the other side of the Micmash Pass. But then we're told that Jonathan did not tell his father what he was planning to do. Now, how many of you, do, you have done that in the past? You just didn't tell your dad what you were planning to do? Don't lie. Okay, good. Now, why didn't you do that? Because you knew that he wouldn't approve. And you just elected, should you get caught, to ask for forgiveness as opposed to asking for permission. And that was ungodly of us, was it not? But not of Jonathan. Jonathan is the faithful one in this story. Saul is the faithless one in this story, and Jonathan knows it. He knows it. So he doesn't tell his dad because he knows his dad will faithlessly oppose what he is about to faithfully Propose. And the narrator includes that as part of this story to tip us off to the fact that we are dealing with two incredibly different guys faithless Saul, faithful Jonathan, and he gives us these two images so we can decide which one we are. He wants us to note the differences between these guys as we move through this story. And so, Jonathan, we read, did not tell his father what he was planning to do. But here's what he's planning to do. With his armor bearer and the Lord, Jonathan, is going to go take on, you ready? The whole Philistine army. And here's the deal. It is a no-lose situation for him. He cannot lose. Saul, on the other hand, we read, was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate, what? cave at Megron. So what has Saul done? He's done what everybody else in Israel has done. He's buried himself in advance of the battle, and they buried his whole troops with him with him as well. It says that the people who were with Saul were about 600 men, so they've all followed him into the hole. And so then what's the first difference that we see between Jonathan and Saul? Well, we see that Saul is a guy who believes in and trusts in and lives in light of what he can see, smell, hear, taste, and touch. And he's doing the math on this. And it doesn't look favorable to him. God is not even a factor in his equation. That's pretty evident. Jonathan, on the other hand, is a guy who trusts in and lives in light of the presence and the power and the promises of the true king who is Christ. And so then as a result, instead of hiding in a cave with his dad, he goes off with his armor bearer and the Lord, who's invisible, to fight the entire Philistine army by himself and pay attention to the details because it's all in the details. It says in verse 4 that within the passes, this MicMash pass if you will, by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison to fight them, there was a rocky crag on the one side and a rocky crag on the other side. And so then what he's saying is that geographically speaking, what's separating Jonathan from the Philistines that he wants to go over and fight is this deep crevasse with a rocky crag on one side that you have to climb down and a rocky crag on the other side that having crossed the mickmash paths to get to, you then have to climb up. But what's curious about this is that in the Hebrew, that word rocky crag means literally tooth of the rock. He's saying there's a whole bunch, a whole set of teeth here on the one side, and a whole set of teeth also on the other side. What is it describing physically? It's describing a mouth. Now, why does that matter? Because when you look through the Old Testament at what the Old Testament has to say about Sheol, which is the place of the dead, it's oftentimes translated the grave, for example. It's described as a devouring monster, as that which has teeth, as that which swallows you up. So what is the son of the king going to do to take on the enemies of God and the enemies of God's people? He's going to descend into the mouth of Sheol, and then he's going to ascend up out of it. And the imagery gets even more intense when you realize that the name of the rocky crag on the Israel, Israelite side of this crevasse was Bozez, which means the thorny one. And the name of the other rocky crag on the Philistine side of the crevasse was named Senech, or, or however you say it, which means the shining one. And the one rocky crag rose on the north in front of Michmash, and the other on the south in front of Giba. And so then, at least in some sense, Jonathan, the son of the king, will descend into the mouth of Sheol, but on his descent into the mouth of the Sheol, he will endure thorns. But then he will arise shining. And the greater part of the story seems to indicate that he will arise shining in the morning. It happens. Early in the day. And so Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come and let us go over to this garrison of these uncircumcised Philistines, which is not like a compliment. He's saying, These ungodly people. And then he says this, and it's interesting and it's informative. He says, It may be that the Lord will work for us. Now, what is that? That's contingent language. That is the statement of great faith in God. He's saying, Listen, I don't know it all. I can't see it all. I can't figure it all out. I'm not nearly as wise as the Lord. I'm sensing God moving in this, and I believe that He may work in this, but here's the deal. Our God is going to deliver us one way or the other, this side of the grave or the other side of the grave, in this life or in the next life, and I trust Him to make the right decision. It's His call, not mine. But I think He's leading in this direction. And I'm willing to take this risk and see if this is what he's up to. I don't know that we give him that chance, most of us. I think we look at the Philistines in our life and we think, you know, either God can't or God won't, and we huddle in a cave somewhere with Saul and his soldiers. Jonathan is a courageous man of faith, he's not counting the numbers. He's counting on his invisible king who can do absolutely anything, and he states that in the next sentence. It's like the heart of the whole story. He says, For here it is. You ready? Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. He's saying, Look, the deliverance that we're looking for here as a nation, as a people, as an individual, is not found in the numbers, it's not found in what we can see, smell, hear, taste, and touch. It's not found in the tangible. It is found only in our king. And he's saying as well, our king is never outmatched. And he's not just saying that with his lips. He's saying that with his life. Look, he's not going to endure the emblems of suffering, death, burial, and then resurrection to go over there and offer them an ice cream cone. He's going over there to offer them the pointy edge of his sword, while his father hides in a cave. See, Jonathan and Saul are two very different people. And I think that if you're going to interact with them and say, all right, which one am I most like? You've got to stop and first of all say, who or what are the Philistines in my life? A. And then B, what am I doing about it? Am I counting the numbers and hiding in a cave? because I've given up on God, and in truth, He's not even a factor in my equation at this point, or am I living in the power and in the presence and in the promises of my King? And in His greater wisdom, He'll deliver when and how, but He will deliver. And am I taking up the weapons that He's given to me, which is not a sword or a sling or a bow or a spear, but it's His Word, it's His Spirit, it's His people, and doing battle. So Jonathan tells his armor bearer what he wants to do. And then we read this in verse seven. It says in his armor bearer, you got to love this guy said to him, do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, he says, I am with you heart and soul. Now that's the guy you want to go to battle with. And then Jonathan said, behold, here's the plan. We will climb down the rocky crag on our side of the Micmash Pass, thus enduring the images of thorns, death, and burial, and then cross over to their side of the Micmash Pass to the Philistine men. And we will stand down there at the base of that rocky crag and show ourselves to the Philistines. Hey, guys, down here. And if they say to us, wait until we come down to you, then we will stand still in our place and we will not go up to them. But if they say... Come on up to us, then we will go up in the power of our great God and King, arising from the mouth of Sheol, shining. For if they call us to come up, then we'll know that the Lord has given them into our hand, and this shall be the sign from God to us that He is with us. In all of this, and so both of them climbed down the thorny crag and descended down into the mouth of Sheol and crossed over the pass and stood at the foot of the shining crag and showed themselves to the Philistines, you know, jumped up and down and went, hey, down here. They showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines at the top. And the Philistines said this, and notice the description. It's language of resurrection. They said, look, the Hebrews are what? coming up out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. They're being raised up out of the earth. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, come on up to us and we'll show you something like, you know, our spears or something. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, come up after me For the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Now, how many of you think the Bible is boring? Because this is so cool. Like, if you're a guy, at least, you got to be pretty jacked at this point. This is amazing. We're going, man. We're going to take these guys down. And Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet. So he ascends the shining one and his armor-bearer after him. And what happens after this figurative resurrection? We read that the Philistines, now notice this, fell before Jonathan, and his armor-bearer killed them after him. And at this first strike, which Jonathan and his armor-bearer made, killed about 20 men within, as it were, half a furrow's length and an acre of land. I have no idea what that means other than that, a small area. And as a result of this devastating blow, this bomb blast that went off in this one small part of this great Philistine garrison, notice what happens because it just emanates out. It's like a shockwave of panic that God causes it says, as a result of that, there was a panic in the camp of the Philistines and in the field, so it's emanating out, and among all the Philistine people, you see how the panic is just spreading and panic spreads like a fire, guys. And the garrison and even the raiders, these raiding parties that the Philistines have been sending out to, you know, terrorize the Israelites, trembled, which is Fascinating. It's the same word that was used last week of the people who were following Saul around as the Philistines were coming. They trembled. God has reversed the situation entirely without, by the way, changing any of the numbers. And then we read that the earth quaked. Okay, well, Jonathan's not doing that, is he? And it became a very great panic amongst the Philistines. And Saul, who gets word of this, hiding out in his cave, through his various watchmen who are atop the hills between these two locations, does a quick survey of all of his men to figure out who's missing. Like somebody from Israel is over there slaying these guys. Who is that? And he determines that it's his son. But then instead of rushing into battle, instead of realizing, my goodness, you know what's happening here? God is doing something miraculous. The ground is shaking. The Philistines are freaking out. One guy, well, with his armor bearer, is kicking butt and taking names over there in a way that is inexplicable and cannot be explained apart from God. The Lord is obviously answering the prayers that all of these people in their caves and in their holes and in their rocks and in their tombs have been uttering for deliverance. Instead of recognizing that God is at work and seizing the moment and seizing the day and the great opportunity that He had to literally wipe out His arch enemies in one fell swoop and rid Israel from them for a generation or two, instead of doing that, Saul says, you know what, I think we need to pray about this. So he calls in his priest... And he says, would you please inquire of the Lord as to whether or not we're supposed to do what seems outrageously obvious. And that, I think, illustrates another difference between these two guys that we ought to consider. What do we see in Jonathan? In Jonathan, we see a man who prays when he should pray and who acts when he should act. In Saul, we see a guy who prays when he should act And who then acts when he should pray, because here's what he did. After starting this holy process with the priest, he does what no other person in the Bible does anywhere. He interrupts the priest and says, you know what? Forget it. We're about to lose it here. Just don't even ask God. We're done. I don't need to know. We're just going to go. So what is it? And how do you know the difference? I think in Jonathan, we see a guy who thinks biblically, who is studied in God's Word, who is full of God's Spirit, and who is learning the ways of God. And as a result, he knows when God's moving. And when he knows that God's moving, he doesn't stop and say, well, I think we should pray. No, he just goes. He acts. He seizes the day because he understands the way the Lord works. Saul cannot get it right. He's not that guy. And the question is, am I that person? Are you that person? Do we have these biblical categories? Are we learning and learning and growing in our knowledge of of how the Lord works and when the Lord works and where the Lord is at work? And so then we have the eyes to see God at work and the ears to hear God saying, come on, man, this is the day. This is the time. And a heart full of faith and courage that says, all right, let's move now. I got an email, I guess it was a week ago, Thursday, uh, from a friend of mine who lives in another state, but he follows us online. So like he listens to the messages online. And one of the things that he did is he referred a friend of his to our website and said, hey, you know, you ought to listen to some of these messages. So his friend has been listening to the messages as well. And now they've been interacting on matters of faith. And so this friend of mine wrote to me and said, hey, Tom, uh, this is what's going on, and this guy has a bunch of questions. Um, If he flies into Fort Lauderdale from the other side of the country, would you be willing to meet with him sometime early next week? All right, here's what I didn't say. I didn't say, you know what, man, I, I just feel like I really need to pray about that. That would be ridiculous. And here's why I didn't say that. Because we prayerfully construct all of these services. We prayerfully construct all of these messages. We do it in faith that God's Word, as He says, will not return void to us, to Him. I do it because I know my heart, and I know your heart, and I know the human heart, and I know the human heart because the Bible comes to me and says, here's the human heart, and then life proves it over again and again and again and again, and here's what I know about our hearts. I know that unless or until the Spirit of God moves in our hearts, we don't ask spiritual questions, at least not sincerely, at least not authentically, and we're darn sure not going to get on an airplane and take a couple of days to come fly to meet with some guy because we have spiritual questions. So I'm not sitting around going, hmm, I wonder if the Lord is at work in this. You know what? I just think I need to inquire. I'm saying, hey, here's my schedule for the beginning of the week. Does any of these times work for you? And if I have to move a few things around, I can probably do that if that would make it happen. So just let me know. And he came and I met with him on Tuesday and it was great. And I do think that the Lord is at work there. But my point is, We need to know God's Word. We need to know God's ways. And then we'll know when to pray and when to act, because we'll see the Lord at work. And here's the goal. Get involved where you see Him at work. Do what He's doing. So anyway... Saul is completely insensitive to the ways and to the Word of God and to whether he's at work or not at work, and he's just always stopping and starting and stopping and starting and all at the wrong time. But he's not just insensitive to God, he's insensitive to his men. He makes a very, very strategically horrifying decision in this instance as well, because he swears his men all in before they finally do silence God and rush into battle. And he says this, and I quote, cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, which tells you that this is probably morning. It was probably morning for it was earlier in the day when Jonathan arose shining. Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, until the sun sets is the point. And I am avenged on my enemies. Okay, well, food is helpful if you're going to have the strength to fight, is it not? So I don't want any of you guys to eat today. The day of our victory Day of great opportunity. And then finally he grabs his soldiers and he rushes into battle. And what happens? As you read through the story, you realize that God brings a great confusion upon the Philistine army. And it's not difficult to figure out how something like that could be fostered and brought about. It really isn't. I mean, first of all, you've got the, this earthquake. That's a little freaky. You've got this guy slaying, you know, 10, 20 people at a time. That's pretty unbelievable. You have this panic moving through. You've got Israelite soldiers, as we read, who have defected from Israel, remember, and joined the Philistines, who now turn and start fighting the Philistines from within their own camp. You have, as we read as well in this story, the people of Israel who have hidden themselves under the ground, burying themselves in light of the certain death that they thought would be theirs, inspired by the resurrection of the son of the king and by his great power, coming up out of their caves, and out of their holes, and out of their tombs, and out of the cisterns in which they have hidden themselves, and attacking the Philistine army. And they don't exactly wear different colored jerseys. You know, it's not shirts and skins. It's not, hey, we're the red team, and you're the blue team. There's a confusion in the Philistine camp, and here's what God does. He takes the great advantage of the technology of the Philistines, and he uses it against them, because they start fighting themselves. They don't know who to take on. And Saul and his soldiers then chase these guys more than 20 miles on foot until sometime in the end of the afternoon. They just run out of gas, man. They are out of strength, except for one, except for Jonathan. Jonathan ate along the way. Jonathan didn't get the word on the curse. Didn't Saul know that he wouldn't know? I mean, he wasn't there, so it's kind of curious, isn't it? And Jonathan has strength, which speaks to the foolishness of Saul. It's very clear in the story what causes them to run out of gas. And so then they wait until the sun sets and they all pounce upon the food in ways that they're not supposed to, but then finally having eaten and regained some measure of strength, Saul says, you know what, I think we need to inquire of the Lord again as to whether we should now chase down the fleeing Philistines who are totally at our you know, pleasure at this point. And so the priest again inquires of the God that Saul had silenced. And God is silence silent. He doesn't respond, which is a statement of judgment. But the judgment is on Saul, guys, not on Jonathan. And yet Saul blames Jonathan for breaking the curse and says, that's the reason God will not answer. And he he tries to kill his own son and the clear Christ figure in the story. So whose side is he on? The Lord's? I think not. And the people of Israel agree. It says in verse 45, Then the people of Israel, who just like God had been silent this whole time, defy their king, which in the ancient Near East is incredibly unusual. Very, very rare. And they said to Saul, Shall Jonathan die, who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it! As the Lord lives, they place themselves under a vow now. There shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day while you hid in a cave. And here's what else Jonathan did for us, for them and for me and for you. He taught or maybe just reminded us of something that we need to be reminded of, I think, very regularly, which is that the deliverance that we're all looking for and so desperately need is found only in Jesus, the true Son of the true King, who alone defeated sin, Satan, and death for all who put their faith and trust in Him by enduring and suffering real thorns and a real death and a real burial. And then on the morning of the third day, by coming forth shining in an authentic and real resurrection. And here's the thing. Inspired by our great King who has endured all of those things for us. Guys, we're to come out of our caves too. We're called to rise and to fight. Not against the world, but for it. Not with swords and spears, and, but with, the, with prayer and the Word and all of these things. We're called to be a people, man, who know when to pray and who know when to act because we know our King and we understand His ways. We're called to be a people who freely partake of the bread of His body and of the wine of His blood, which, by the way, unlike Saul, He commands us to eat regularly for our strength and sustenance spiritually. And by surrounding ourselves with the community of God's people who, just like they were for Jonathan, oftentimes they are for us. They're the instrument of God's protection, of God's provision, of God's safeguarding, of God's deliverance in our lives. And so then with all of that, let me ask you again, who or what are the Philistines in your life? And I have a feeling that to ask the question is to answer it, isn't it? It's like you don't have to go, oh, man, you know, well, it might be this. It's like, no, no, it's this thing. It's this person. It's this situation. It's and what are you doing about it? Are you hiding in a cave? Or inspired by the victory that is yours through Jesus? Are you learning to live in His power and in His presence and in His promises and doing battle against whatever the Philistines are? Knowing, by the way, that He really is never outmatched. He really isn't. So who or what are the Philistines? What are you doing about it? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for our Savior who is our King. God, we thank you for the one who endured thorns and suffering in our behalf. Who in our behalf suffered death and burial that we might be forgiven of sin and made alive. And who in order not just to defeat sin, but ultimately to defeat death as well. Has been raised from the dead and who gives us his spirit, who makes us sincerely interested in him. Who reveals him to us. And reveals us to us thus revealing our great need for Him. God, I pray that we would see our King risen and shining, having fought a decisive battle that reverberates through our lives and all history and ends in eternal glory for Him and for all who place their faith and trust in Him. We have a victorious King and we are to live as a victorious people. So then, Lord, come to us in our caves. In our caves of all manner of issues and problems and things. And draw us by faith out. Bring us to yourself. Show us our Savior. And teach us how wisely to fight. We pray these things for your glory and the good of your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.